Paleo Hackers. Welcome back. Another episode of the Payax Video Podcast. This is number 12 we've done on the video format. So if you're still listening on audio, head on over to YouTube. Just punch in our name and you'll find us. With me on the other end, right there, is the Paleo Mom. Sarah Ballantyne, uh, New York's best, New York Times best-selling author of The Paleo Approach. And she also has the Paleo Approach Podcast. Sarah, are you Paleo? I can't tell. Am I, am I paleo? Yeah, I can't tell. Do you have yeah. something to do with it? I don't know. I might I might really, really like this new diet thing that everybody's talking about. Yeah. They're calling it a fad, but I don't think it's a fad. I think it's here to stay. Jump on the bandwagon. Yeah. It's okay. Right, right. Yeah, no, I really need to think about the branding and marketing there, right? Yeah, that's what <laughs> so. I did with the Seahawks in Seattle. I don't even like football. I just jumped on it. Um, <laughs> so cool. One thing I like about you is that I was you know, stalking all my guests before the show like I always do. And I was going through, and you have a really credible science background, which I think is very important. You had a medical uh, degree, I, correct? Yeah, so I have a PhD in medical biophysics. So it's different than being a doctor. It's a research stream. Um, and what medical biophysics is, is it's this interdisciplinary field. It's all m- medical applications, but it uses basic biology, physiology, molecular biology, cellular biology, and then it also incorporates you know, basic physics. And where I was in that research stream was more on the biology end, where the physics was more in the tools that we were using to answer basic biology questions. I actually had a bachelor's degree in physics and kind of went more and more biology, basic biology, as I continued my education. So by the time I was finishing my second postdoctoral research fellowship, I was doing completely basic cellular biology. I identified and um, characterized a new uh, cancer suppressor gene. So it went from like the physics was the cool microscopes we used all the way to, wow, now I'm really understanding what's happening inside an epithelial cell. Yeah, so, for sure. So cool. At, yeah, at the so really sm- neat background. One of the smallest levels, for sure. And so when people are kind of talking in the paleo community, we like to talk, um, whether it be in generalizations, you know, calling things just toxins and label it and then throw it away or detox, you know, it's just like these catch-all terms or fats and, you know, good or bad. I mean, it must kind of, in a way drive you a little crazy when you have such a deep understanding of like the, what's going on at the cellular level. Um, so how does, how does that work into kind of what you do? I mean, are you, are you constantly like snuffing through information and, uh, yes. and getting so, fed up with like the paleo bro science? Um, no, I, you know, so I think that for me, scientific literacy is such a huge passion. It's been a passion for me long before I hit paleo and I didn't even realize until I had been blogging for, probably about six months, that it was, you know, being part of the paleo movement was an opportunity to address scientific literacy from a public health perspective. So I I like that the paleo diet is rooted in science, and I like that the science is something that we talk about in the community. But at the same time, as the community grows and we start to, you know, pull in a lot of other sort of alternative health communities, what I'm starting to see, especially in the last year, is more anti-science sentiment. So more, oh, correlation does not equal causation, right? It's our biggest catch-all phrase for, I'm going to ignore that scientific research because it says something contrary to what I believe. And I'm just going to say, oh, well, that research was done in animals, or that research had a small sample size, or that research, you know, was an epidemiological study. We've got all these ways of just, like, ignoring important information and important data. And that doesn't mean that these studies that we're shoving to the side are like going to completely, you know, change the way we want to eat. But what it does mean is that, um, that we're, we're ignoring pieces of the puzzle, right? So each one of these things contributes to what we know on the whole, and we need to take everything with a grain of salt, but we need to consider the entire body of research. Sure. And so for me, it's, I'm trying to increase the base, scientific knowledge so that we can start talking about the merits of those papers, what they tell us, what they don't tell us, and really bring that overall conversation within the community to a much higher level and a much more, for me, I think, balanced, right? So we're not right trying to steer clear. Like if we want this to actually be not a fad diet anymore, we need to steer clear from that cult aspect of this is the way to go. This is the only great thing these are the rules, right? And we need to start going, okay, well, look, there's individuality. There's some gray area foods worth experimenting with. There's some things we don't know, 
right? It's a, it's a big picture. There's a lot of inputs into health that are go beyond diet and start really looking at everything that the scientific literature can tell us rather than just these bits and pieces that fit with our preformed narrative. Couple things. First one, I agree. I think there's a lot of confirmation bias that goes on, especially when you, you know, you can, with the internet now, you can cherry pick your own reality. So whatever you want to believe, you can find. You can find yeah. 100 websites that support that. Yeah. yeah, whatever conspiracy rabbit hole you go down, I mean, you can you can research it to death until you're convinced it's it's number one, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's true. And yeah. so I think the same thing applies in the health community and paleo, whatever uh, cult diet you're going to subscribe to, veganism, you know, raw food, whatever. You can just research it to death and be really closed off to other information and then just have that confirmation bias because everyone around you is also agreeing and saying, yes, it's the best. It's the best. It's the best. Yeah. So what I'm trying to do within this community is have this broader conversation where we talk about. What is it about, say, plant-based diets that have so much science to support their health benefits? And is pale, does paleo include those aspects? I mean, it, it does, right? Like, we are focused on, you know, vegetables is a really, really important part of our diet. And that's one of the key mechanisms behind why plant-based diet can be effective, right? Plant-based diet really focuses on omega-3s. Well, we do that in the paleo community. So let's talk about similarities and let's hone in on not a set of rules, but a template, right? From, and where you give, you know, new people coming into this community, this full range of information. So you go, here's, here's your starting place. Here's where you get to experiment. And here's a suggested protocol for getting to this place that we're all trying to find, right? We're trying to find that space between what is optimal for our bodies, what our bodies need to be optimally healthy and what our bodies tolerate right? And what we can actually get away with in terms of our diet. And we're trying to live somewhere in between because somewhere in between is where we get to be healthy and also have that like food is delicious. We like to celebrate with food. We want to go on holiday and, you know, have a margarita from time to time, like finding that, that balance where food is still celebratory and it's still a quality of life aspect, but it's not making us sick anymore. And so we need, we need a, a really comprehensive set of tools. We can't distill this way of eating to you eat this, you don't eat this, you eat this, you don't eat this, you know, this is right. Like if we want to measure everything, then you're talk, starting to talk about a one size fits all approach. And I think it's pretty accepted within this community, especially when you look at the diversity of, or the shades of paleo, right? Like we start to look at how diverse this community is getting, I think one of the things we're all saying is it's not a one-size-fits-all approach, but how to communicate that to new people coming in, it's getting harder and harder because of, um, I think, a lack of central messaging and also an um, inadequacy in terms of explaining the science. Fifty Shades of Paleo. Fifty say. Shades of Paleo, yeah. That was in my head for a while, the whole time you were talking. It uh, would be an excellent book title. It would. Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah it would some, sell. Someone should uh, jump on that. Yeah. I bet There's, three people just did it. Three yeah. people just copyrighted that. Yeah. Well, I, I took it out of the interview because that's my book title now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I have no desire to write a book. I'm a terrible author. Um, so Another thing I want to touch on there. You know, uh, we were talking about catch-all terms and correlation causation and then kind of all that stuff. But another one I hear is paralysis by analysis. And I think that's a very true phrase. You know, it, it floats out there. Everyone says it basically describes the person we were just talking about of where they have to research it to death and they have to find all these studies and bring them all together. And by doing so, they don't really take action on stuff or it's, it's overwhelming or they're the perfectionist and they have to do everything right. Um, and so, uh, do you find that a lot with people you work with? Is that one of the, uh, I, cause I, personally, I think that's one of the major step ups, even for myself is like the need to do everything right. And to know everything before we even take action on something. So for me, I think of that as paleo perfectionism or yeah. orthorexia, where you take it to an eating disorder level. Um, for me, I actually, so oh, fun fact I researched everything I could get my hands on the internet for free because I didn't want to buy a book um, for three months before I committed to trying paleo. And then I like ripped off the bandaid and jumped in. I'm actually just coming up to my four year paleo anniversary. Um, but I was the type of person who 
really needed to know the science behind the diet so that I could be motivated to make the hard choices day to day. So I think there's, right, there's two ends to the spectrum. There's the getting the education so that you understand the cellular and molecular consequences of your choices to keep you motivated. And I know a lot of people who really need to know the science behind why one food would be better than another food in order to really motivate those choices. But then there's the other side of constantly preparing. And then that sort of like, I have to be perfect or I'm nothing. And I see that a lot. So I see, right. And how you identify yourself, right. So we're talking about, you hear a lot. I am paleo rather than I follow a paleo lifestyle or I eat a paleo diet. So it's becoming a label that we attach to ourselves. And we can talk about, you know, as a sort of psychological perspective, like whether or not that's a good thing to be like owning this label in this regard. But what happens is I was at a restaurant and um, the, the waitress was like, you know, asking me questions about my, my choices. And I said, well, I, you know, I follow a paleo diet. And she said, oh yeah, I tried that. But I I eat rice once in a while, so I guess I'm not paleo. And I just kind of wanted to say like, no, like it's, it's, if you're making those choices, the majority of the time, if that's your template, if your body handles rice, right. If, or if you're right, lacto paleo or primal or whatever you want to call, you know, paleo plus dairy, right. There's again, shades of paleo that doesn't exclude you from being able to say you follow a paleo diet. And so what you get is these like on the bandwagon, off the bandwagon, right? Yeah. So this, um, it's sort of like death by perfection. So these people who feel like when they cheat once and maybe they're cheating and it's like a pizza and a gallon of ice cream cheating, right? Not, not what we would normally consider like a, you know, emotionally stable, healthy treat. Like, yeah. like it's, it's more the, they went the food it. addiction. They went for it. And I mean, no judgment. Some people can go for it and they get right back on the bandwagon and they feel great and it doesn't negatively impact their health. But for some people it just sort of derails. Right. And it's like, sure. oh, okay, well, since I had pizza yesterday, I guess it doesn't matter if I have a bagel for breakfast today. And then they kind of have cheat, to do cheat this, meal like, turns into cheat week. Turns into cheat month, yeah. turns into 30 day challenge turns into and you go right back yeah. to super, super rigid. Lots of guilt so, and shame too, because they didn't do it perfectly. Right. And I think the point of this diet is not to feel deprived. It's not to create, you know, a cycle of, you know, binge and purge, you know, on the broader scale. It's not to, you know, go on it to lose 10 pounds, to look great for a wedding and then you know, fall yeah. off the bandwagon for three months, right? The goal is sustainability. And that's not just like environmental and um, ecological sustainability. That's self-sustainability, right? I can make these healthy choices as often as possible for the rest of my life. And so it means getting away from that diet mentality, which means getting away from the perfectionism and the over-obsession with food choices, right? And it, getting away from the judgment, self-judgment, judgment of others, getting away from like, oh my gosh, you had real birthday cake at a birthday party. Therefore, you, you can't call yourself paleo. And right, we, there's so much negativity. And we kind of just all need to like, just look at what's on our own plate and yeah. not worry about what our neighbor's doing. Yeah, for sure. And, and um, I think, right, think about it more in terms of long-term health, right? It was in Lauren Cordain's initial paleo diet book to have this 80-20 rule. And the idea that if you followed paleo 80% of the time, you could enjoy 100% of the benefits. And yet we still have this perfectionism mentality where you have to be 100%. And certainly, right, there's also the aspect of food sensitivities and intolerances and where those fit into your 20% or whether your 20% is going to be 10% or if your 10% is going to be 5%. And that's something for each one of us to work out for ourselves. But I think it's really, really important to think about it from a sort of long-term perspective, like how are you going to be able to commit to a version, a shade of paleo for the rest of your life? And does that mean that you occasionally make paleo muffins? Great. No judgment. Does that mean that you're going to include rice from time to time? Great. No judgment. Does that mean you're going to go out for Mexican food once a week? Great. No judgment. Whatever it is that works for you, that makes you healthier, but then also is sustainable and makes us something that you can stick to. And that's going to be a different solution for everyone. And it might be a moving target, right? Sure. And, 
you know, uh, personal question. I know being in the health community and talking about these ideas and talking about paleo and holding yourself accountable and exercising and sunlight, I mean, uh, the list goes on. And we do these shows and we talk to experts about this stuff and we have blogs and we write about this stuff. So I think, I was talking to my friend Josh about this, within the paleo community or within the health community, the people talking about it hold themselves to a really high standard and that can get uh, really stressful. And I've seen a lot of people in the health community who write about the stuff, who do the research, totally crack. And they have some of the worst hidden addictions out of anyone out there. I mean, there's there's some yeah. of the m- most mentally unhealthy relationships with food yeah. out of anyone. And I, I see that time and time again off uh, camera, off audio when we're talking and just totally yeah. radically honest. And so, I mean, do you relate to that at all? Do you get yeah. really stressed out when you're, you know? So absolutely. So my, my um, you know, I came from a history of obesity and binge eating disorder. Um, and so I still struggle with the food addiction piece. I still have a really hard time with portion control, especially when I'm stressed or fatigued. So my default is to eat until I can't fit another bite, like to eat until I feel a little bit like throwing up, right? Like that's my default. That's what my body thinks it should be doing every time I eat. So I have to be really mindful about portion control. Mm -hmm. And then I still struggle with sugar cravings and it's completely psychological. So I can be super, super clean for months and be completely over the physiological need for sugar and I'm still having emotional. So I'm stressed and that, you know, it used to be my comfort. It used to be my best friend. It used to be what kept me company. It used to be, you know, my shoulder to cry on was, you know, Ben and Jerry's. So, or Oreo cookies, let's okay. Like a box at a time. Um, and so I still struggle with that food addiction piece. It's a lot better than it used to be. But what happens for me is when I get tired um, so if I'm staying up late to work, which happens, you know, when I'm working on books or I have a big project, when my stress level's high, also happens when I'm working on books or have a big project, um, then that, right, and we know from the scientific literature that stress and lack of sleep um, create less inhibited eating patterns and increase appetite. And I feel that I'm super, super sensitive to that. 100%. So for me, yeah. I'll slide, and it's still within this, like, paleo template, but for me, sliding would be like you know, coconut milk ice cream with, you know, dark chocolate melted on top with some banana, right? Like that would still fit as like a paleo treat, but it's more sugar than my body can handle. And it's not good to do that seven days in a row, for example. And so for me, you know, I've learned that I do best when I'm not eating those things. When I eat them, it's a slippery slope. And the number one thing that I have to do to get back on track is sleep. And when I get enough sleep, suddenly I don't want those foods anymore. So for me, it's been interesting because I, you know, I had felt like I had everything down and then I wrote two books in the same year and then it felt like everything fell apart and it was really like stress and lack of sleep were the root behind that. But it goes with, for me, right, a sugar addiction and sliding that way. And I've been really open with the fact that I struggle with this when my stress and my sleep's really high. And then I have to keep, you know, for me, it's the number one focus has to be on these lifestyle factors because then the food part's easy. Sure. And uh, I mean, great distinction between psychological eating and physical eating, you know, like I've felt that physical candida overgrowth, disrupted, you know, dysbiosis, like microbiome just screaming for sugar. And that's a totally different feeling than it eating because you're stressed or very tired. Very different feeling. Yeah. Um, it, very, very different. And I can be in that super clean, super healthy, very, very active. And then as soon as I'm stressed, right, my brain knows that sugar is com- comforting. And, um, and it's always sugar. Some people have like high fat food, you know, or fat and salty cravings for me, it's always sugar cravings. And that's just the way that my neurotransmitters in my you know, food addiction center, um, are actually telling, telling me what to do for me. The biggest change over being, you know, close to 300 pounds and eating, I guess a standard American diet, you know, a lot of Kentucky fried chicken and yeah. stuffed cheese crust pizzas. Um, the biggest difference between then and now for me is when things do start to slide, 
they still, right, I've got these lines I don't cross because of food sensitivities, and it doesn't slide very far. So rather than things starting to slide and it just spirals into months and months of overeating, I'll have two days or three days, and then I go, oh, I'm not feeling well. I'll get, you know, joint pain. I won't be sleeping well. I'll be achy. Um, and th- those are all symptoms that relate to the fact that my autoimmune disease will start to flare when I let my eating slide and then I'll get right back on track. Sure. So the biggest difference is sort of like how bad it gets and then how, how quickly I like tighten everything up. And so, and then it happens less frequently. So, you know, there was times in my life where it was pretty much, you know, I'd fall into that slide. I'd be spent two weeks do- doing really, really good, clean, low carb eating. And then I would fall into two months of, you know, rebound, eat whatever I want. And then I'd clean myself up and for three weeks and then it'd be three months off. Whereas now it's, you know, it's two or three days, maybe a month that it sort of slides and I'm eating more sugar. Um, the women out there can probably relate and then pull myself back. And, um, but it's, it's not, I don't find it effortless. So I find, I love the food I'm eating. I find the choices of food effortless, but I find that, the mindfulness when it comes to portion control and the mindfulness when it comes to avoiding, you know, even like 85% dark chocolate, like I do better if I'm not eating that stuff. And so being really mindful about those types of treats. Um, and you know, it's for that reason that I, you know, when people are starting this diet, it's so overwhelming. It can be really overwhelming depending on where you come from. Like I can totally relate because it's, still not easy. And I don't like to, I like to tell people there's a learning curve, but it still requires commitment, right? It still requires dedication, hopefully not self deprivation, hopefully not, you know, feeling like you're missing out, but it still requires this level of commitment to stick with it. Yeah. I mean, it really is. It's like learning anything. It's like a language, you know, how would it be if day one learning Spanish, you just got dropped in the middle of Tijuana, you know, like, how would you do? You probably wouldn't do too well, but then you'd gradually start picking it up, learning a few words. Okay. This, 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 and slowly start to like find people who can show you things and find resources and people who have uh, a similar style to you that you like and relate to. And then you slowly build your knowledge base of words and vocabulary. And then, you know, depends how fast you want to do it, but you can get fluent in Spanish fairly quickly if you immerse yeah. yourself in it. And so I think That's food, a great analogy. food is very, immersive and you're doing it three times a day, four times a day, five times a day. And you got to immerse yourself with people whose approaches you like and, and you go for it. You learn from there. That's like the most phenomenal analogy. I'm going to, I'm going to use that if that's okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah that's a good it. one. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that, you know, it can be struck like that's where you can see like the person who's doing a paleo diet in a family that doesn't want to do it why it's so much harder for them, right? Because they're living in a household where they don't have the support and other people are eating these like uber palatable foods in front of them that are super, super tempting. And that's where you can understand that that person's struggles are so like extreme compared to the person who, you know, lives by themselves or their entire family wants to go on board and they're all going to do it. Maybe they've got friends that are paleo. And that's where online communities are so important because they can, replace that support when you don't have it in your sort of day-to-day physical life. Yeah. Surrounding yourself. Um, so to touch real quick on some more like scientific stuff for the people out there and, uh, they're gung ho and they want to immerse themselves in the research and the science. What is going on? Let's just dive into it. I know you're familiar with autoimmune diseases. That's a humongous area for people. Um, There's no great segue to that. So I just want to ask you flat out, kind of what is an autoimmune disease? Set it up for the person at home who's who's ready for to learn about the autoimmune disease science. So the immune system is the part of our bodies that is supposed to defend us from a foreign invader. So that foreign invader could be a virus, a bacteria, a parasite. It could be a sliver, it could be dirt in a wound, right? They, it's the part of our body that's responsible for healing and defense. And it's incredibly complex. So there's aspects of it that are general and quick to respond, aspects that are specific and slower to respond. There's aspects that are um, controllers. So you can, you can think of the immune system as being divided into two categories. The category that attacks, right? So they're responsible for identifying a foreign invader and going after them. And then there's the, like the people who are holding the reins and going, Hey, okay, this is great. 
there's this part of the immune system that's responsible for turning it off when the job's done and making sure that it doesn't get out of control. And so what happens in all chronic illness is that inflammation plays a role. Inflammation is the part of the immune system that's not specific. What happens in all chronic illness is you've got the inflammation's out of control and that part of the immune system that's supposed to rein it in isn't working very well. The signals to keep the inflammation going are maybe higher than the regulatory arm of the immune system can actually keep up with. Also, the immune system is a huge nutrient hog. It uses nutrient resources like no other system Mm. in the body. And so when you're nutrient deficient, the first part of the immune system to break down is that regulatory arm. It's the part that reins everything in and turns the immune system off at the end. So what happens in autoimmune disease is instead of, or in addition to, that generalized inflammation being turned on and not being turned off, it's the specific part of the immune system that's turned on. And what happens is basically the immune system loses the ability to tell the difference between you and a foreign invader. So they can't, it doesn't know the difference between like my thyroid, because I have thyroid autoimmune disease, and a bacteria or a parasite or a virus. So it's treating my thyroid as a foreign object that must be destroyed. And then that regulatory arm of the immune system is also right not working because this this whole losing the ability to differentiate what's called self from non-self, right? So to differentiate a natural protein in your body from the protein in a bacterial cell wall, for example, that accident happens. That's a normal thing to have happen in the human body. But there's all these fail-safe mechanisms for the regulatory arm of the immune system to go, wait a minute, you're attacking us. So they will, they can kill the cells that are doing that. They can basically make those cells dormant. They can increase regulatory cells to uh, control all of the inflammation, right? They've got all these different ways that they can say, nope, nope, that's not right. Stop. So what happens in autoimmune disease, right? The regulatory arm of the immune system is not working well. So that fail safe fails. So you get this accident that happens of, okay, wait, I'm going to start attacking thyroid tissue now. And then that part of the immune system that's supposed to rein that in stops working. And so what autoimmune disease is, is it's the immune system, which is supposed to protect us from foreign invaders, basically turning against us. It's like mass mutiny of the immune system and attacking our tissues as well. And what differentiates one autoimmune disease from another, what differentiates multiple sclerosis from Hashimoto's thyroiditis, from lupus, from rheumatoid arthritis, from psoriasis, is just the tissue that's being attacked. So it's exactly what protein the immune system is focusing in on as being the foreign invader. Okay. And so it's an entire huge range of classes of, of diseases. It affects somewhere between 50 and 60 million Americans, uh, which is, by the way, double the number of people affected by cardiovascular disease and quadruple the number of people affected by cancer. And this class of 140-ish, probably more, autoimmune diseases, it's all about the immune system attacking a part of the human body, attacking part of our own bodies, and not being able to regulate itself. And the difference between those autoimmune diseases is just exactly where the immune system has focused its attack. Okay, so whether it's Hashimoto's, arthritis, type 1 diabetes, celiac, any other autoimmune disease, lupus, it's the area of where it's being um, manifested. Yeah, so it's the immune system is targeted with use of antibodies. So antibodies recognize a very small section of a protein. So proteins are made of these like big, long chains of amino mm-hmm. acids, and then they're folded amongst each other in like these really complex ways. So you can imagine like if you took a chain and just kind of wrapped it into a ball, you'd have little bits on the outside where you have, you can see all the different links. Right. So it's those little areas where you can see all these different links that an antibody will attach to. And that's how the immune system or the adaptive immune system. So this very specific part of the immune system focuses its attacks is with the use of antibodies. So you can form, so you form antibodies against a protein and in the human body, that protein can be found in one type of cell or in many types of cells. So some autoimmune diseases that attack multiple types of tissues, it's because it's a more general protein. And some types of autoimmune diseases will have more than one antibody associated with it. So for example, I know a lot about Hashimoto's thyroiditis because I have it. Um, There's two antibodies that have been identified as being like the problem, like the what's focusing the immune system on the thyroid gland, thyroid peroxidase or TPO and uh, thyroglobulin. And you can have one of those antibodies, 
the other antibody, or you can have both. And what that really does is it sort of, it tells you exactly where on the production of thyroid hormones your um, immune system is stopping that production. Um, It can also tell you how aggressive the immune system is being. So if you have both of those antibodies, typically you've got a more aggressive disease that's destroying more thyroid tissue. And there's a lot of autoimmune diseases in which we haven't actually identified the antibodies that are responsible for that specific attack. Okay. And one question floating around in my head when you're talking about autoimmune diseases and, and where they are in the body, do they spread at all? Can they can uh, Hashimoto's go down to your gut and cause celiac? Or is it do they jump forms or are they just specific locations? So uh, yes, but not not in the not spreading. So what happens is that once the immune system has gotten dysfunctional to the point that an autoimmune disease can happen. So the regulatory arm of the immune system is completely not working. All you need to have happen to develop a secondary or tertiary autoimmune disease is another accident of having an antibody form that recognizes a different protein in in the body that will focus the immune system on another part of the body. So they actually say that once you have an autoimmune disease, on average, you will develop a new autoimmune disease every 10 years. Wow. So it's pretty common to So it's incredibly more. common. And what's interesting, because there's a genetic component to this. So there's mm-hmm. no like, if you have this gene or this gene, you're doomed to have autoimmune disease. It just right. increases your susceptibility and it makes it so that sort of diet inputs and lifestyle inputs and, you know, toxin exposure and those types of things have a more likely to cause autoimmune disease than if you didn't have those genes. Like fa- family history plays into it. Family history, because because of this genetic susceptibility, mm-hmm. family history plays into it also because diet and lifestyle skills are often learned, right? Yeah. So yeah. we tend to eat the same way or similarly to how our parents eat. Mm-hmm. We tend to be roughly as active as our parents were active. So there's that extra component with autoimmune disease that comes from sort of its, its nature and nurture from yeah. a family perspective. But, um, but so what happens in, in autoimmune disease is you have, because of this genetic component, you have this, these autoimmune diseases that tend to go in pairs. So, or tend to go in triplets. So you do see celiac and Hashimoto's disease fairly commonly together. So there's these ones that like, they tend to go together and they tend to go together because of the genetic like the genes sort of predispose you to this kind of class of autoimmune diseases. And it's not, you know, it's not a life sentence. Those are the ones you're going to get. If your mother had hashies, you could, you know, just as easily end up with ankylosing spondylitis, right? You could have something that's very, very different. Um, But it's basically once the immune system breaks down, yeah, it's not working. And Mm -hmm. the uh, opportunity for other tissues to be attacked is, is there. Are these curable? If someone has a major autoimmune disease, let's just say Hashimoto's or um, celiac or lupus, can can you cure them and totally get rid of them, or can you just minimize them and keep them somewhat dormant? You cannot cure them. Okay, so once so you go, once you've got them, you've got them. What you can do is you can put it into remission. So remission means that you have zero symptoms. So it feels like a cure. Mm-hmm. And some people will actually, even separate of, you know, paleo diet or autoimmune protocol, you know, there's this history of people who will have a flare of an autoimmune disease for a few years, and then it will magically disappear, and it will never come back. But they don't call that the disease was cured. They don't say the disease went away. They say the disease went into remission. And that's one thing that's really important for people who are making diet and lifestyle changes to address autoimmunity. So, you know, following the autoimmune protocol, sleeping more, being active, spending time outside, right? You know, yeah. managing stress, that whole kit and caboodle that is targeting immune regulation and, and supporting this regulatory arm of the immune system, turning off this attacking arm of the immune system. You know, it's important to understand that, you know, putting autoimmune diseases into remission is, is really common anecdotally. Um, We're seeing this. There's only been one, a very, very small scale clinical trial using um, this approach in, um, autoimmune disease patient, patients so far, but anecdotally from the tens of thousands of people who are doing this remission is very common. Minimization of, of symptoms is extremely common, but 
you know, when you all of a sudden, when you've been struggling with a disease and these autoimmune diseases tend to be very, very invasive into our lives, um, you know, the symptoms are awful. And, and there's certain symptoms that you see across most autoimmune diseases, like fatigue and trouble sleeping and aches and pains and mood issues and depression, right? These are, these are things that just rob you of your joy of life. So it's really important. Like when you, when you make these changes and like all of a sudden you feel amazing, it's so easy to say I cured myself with food, right? It's so easy to say, I, you know, this is, this is a cure because you, you feel great. Your disease goes away. Um, but it's really important to understand that it can come back and it can come back unpredictably. So you can be continuing to do everything right. And something that you didn't have control over, like a cold virus or a hormone shift, right? Like, especially with women, our our hormones have major shifts at at different times in our lives, can stimulate a flare. And then then it's a a moving target. So then it's like, okay, well, I figured out the diet piece and the sleep piece and the stress piece. We'll now have to refigure out that whole thing in order to now incorporate the fact that my hormones are different or incorporate the fact that I'm recovering from an infection. And so it's, it can be really, it can be really just emotionally challenging because of that, but it's, it's still important to maintain that. Like we have this tool that is so much more powerful than any drug that has been developed so far for autoimmune disease, which is regulating the immune system with micronutrient sufficiency. So we're giving the immune system all the nutrients it actually needs to function properly. We are regulating hormones, which, you know, all input into the immune system. We're addressing gut health, which inputs into the immune system. We're addressing mental health, which inputs into the immune system. We're addressing things like lymphatic flow with movement and, um, you know, hormone regulation with activity, we're, we're doing everything we can to make the immune system work properly. And those tools are lifelong tools. So challenges come, we've got this tool set that we can then apply. And, um, and it's, it's pretty life-changing. And I've talked to people, you know, it can, the amount of time it takes people to actually see if, see results on the autoimmune protocol varies dramatically. And it can go from two days to a year of persistence before you really start to see results, which is very, very frustrating for the people who it takes a year for. Usually when it's taking that that long, it's because there's some lifestyle component yeah. that is really, really tough to prioritize. What uh, what are some of the steps in the autoimmune protocol? Like how, how does it vary and is it different than paleo at all? Yeah, so it's based on a paleo template, but what it does is it has like a stricter cutoff when it comes to foods and evaluating whether or not a food should be part of the diet. So you could see any food as being having a bunch of good stuff, right? Nutrients that are you know useful for the body and then maybe some bad stuff. So things that are inherently inflammatory and, you know, foods that are an obvious, yes, have tons of good stuff and almost no bad stuff. And then foods that are an obvious, no, right? Like grains and, and legumes like soy and peanuts mm-hmm. are the other way, right? Lots of bad stuff, not much good stuff. But there's this whole range of gray in between. And a lot of these gray foods are part of the paleo diet. What happens with the autoimmune protocols, we go, no, we want to keep it here. So, for example, tomatoes, nightshades, they have a lot of really great nutrients in them. So, And they have some great like antioxidants, right, like lycopene, right? There's some amazing nutritive value to that entire class of vegetables, or I guess they're technically fruit. They're vegetable-like fruits. Um, and they also have compounds in them that are inherently inflammatory. So they have compounds in them that act as adjuvants and can stimulate the immune system. So what happens in, in the standard paleo diet is you go, okay, well, these foods are right here, but they've got nutritive value, so I'm going to include them. Right. What happens in the autoimmune protocol is you go, oh, no, inherently inflammatory, I'm going to exclude them. Okay. So there's some extra exclusions based on that principle. And then are those the like, other... Sorry, are those like the FODMAPs? No, FODMAPs are not excluded on the autoimmune protocol by default. Okay. It's an extra um, an extra complication that some people have to deal with who have severe gastrointestinal symptoms coming into it. So they would do like a FODMAP-free diet for two to three weeks and then slowly reintroduce FODMAPs. Um, that's a, actually a really important like side science note mm-hmm. is that FODMAP sensitivity comes from a combination of... Um, 
you know, not healthy cells that are lining the gut. So they can't handle the transport of fructose. So too much fructose is getting down into the large intestine and then not having the right bacteria in our digestive tracts to break down those, um, fibers and those, those polysaccharides effectively. So what you do is actually do a low FODMAP diet and give the gut an opportunity to heal, um, give, have a corrective, um, influence to, um, the bacteria in the digestive tract. And then you start slowly adding it back in like teaspoon at a time type, adding it Mm -hmm. back in because those fibers are all really, really important for, um, gut microbiome diversity. And what you do is by slowly adding them back in, you're then growing the right types of bacteria to help break them down. Um, but they're slow. They tend to be slow growing bacteria. So that's why you do it very, very slowly. So it's one of those things people go on like a low FODMAP and they stay there, but that's not actually what the science supports. The science supports using it as a corrective, right? You spur on some gut healing, correct the, the gut microbiome, and then you start adding these foods back in. So it's, that's a, the AIP doesn't start with low FODMAPs except for people who are having severe gastrointestinal symptoms. And then for them, they would combine the two approaches. So a key aspect of the autoimmune protocol is basically flooding the body with micronutrients. So there's this extra focus that some shades of paleo have, but it's certainly not across the board of eating frequently daily, the most nutrient dense foods available to us. So that's organ meat, which is why not all shades of paleo are on this bandwagon seafood, which is a little bit easier for people to understand, and a lot of vegetables. So, um, you know, it was Terry Wall's calculations for nutrient sufficiency for mitochondrial health that came up with nine to 10 servings of vegetables a day. And, you know, that's, you know, when, even when you look at it from micronutrients required by the immune system, that's like a really good target minimum. And so on the autoimmune protocol, it's not just about like, cutting out nightshades and cutting out nuts and seeds and cutting out alcohol, right? Those, these, these, these foods that we're going to take out because they can be inflammatory and can negatively impact the health of the gut. But then we also focus on tons of vegetables, seafood, most days, organ meat four or five times a week, and really flooding our bodies with nutrients so that the immune system has the resources it needs to function normally. What other resources do you use or follow, um, for like autoimmune research and, and whatnot? I am mostly getting my information from the direct, from the scientific articles. So I call it the rabbit hole of PubMed. So what happens is, you know, what, whether I'm writing a blog post or I'm writing, you know, maybe a little Facebook post or I'm working on a chapter for a book, I'll have a topic and I want to read up the whole range of that topic. So I really understand the pros, the cons, the controversies, right? Like I really want to be able to present a balanced perspective. And then what happens is on PubMed is there's this little, like you might be interested in sidebar, right? Of other research articles. And so sometimes I'll just end up on these complete tangents and I'll be like, Oh wait, that sounds interesting. Oh wait. I I do want to research infrared saunas. Right. Well, sometimes, sometimes it goes there and sometimes some of the most insightful research is sort of found that way, not from a keyword search. Um, so, you know, I have certainly, there's some other leaders in this field who like Terry Walls, whose information I think is fantastic. But for me, um, I'm, I'm always going to the source. So I'm always right. If Terry Walls is saying something, I want to know the paper that she's quoting. And then I want to go read that paper and then read the papers that it cites and the papers that cite it and form this bigger picture in my brain. For me, it's really important because scientific literacy is such a huge um, component of everything that I do. Um, and because presenting that balanced perspective, right. Presenting that there's pros and cons presenting the contradictory information, presenting that this is a complex topic and we don't know everything is really important for people to understand that paleo is dynamic and it's the changes that we've seen in this community over the last 10 years reflects. Sometimes it's just conversations. Hey, let's look at you know, whether or not potatoes really are inherently inflammatory or whether some people can tolerate them really well and whether or not they should have a place in this, you know, starting point of paleo or if they're an ad later food or how we want to address this, right? So we've seen those types of conversations happen within the community. Sometimes that's because new science is being performed. Sometimes it's because it's more brains evaluating 
the science that's already been done. Um, but for me, it's really important to be one of those brains that's looking at the full range of science and really communicating the details, right? Like I want, I want people to understand that it's not a cut and dry issue with potatoes, that potatoes are one of these foods. And so whether or not you include them at the beginning of your diet really depends on your health history going in. And, and so for me, it's, it's always about really pulling together research articles. And what's really interesting is these are research articles that often come from a lot of different fields. So the researchers that aren't necessarily going to the same conferences, they're not talking to each other. And within science, there's no like umbrella organization that looks at all the different science that's being done and kind of forms a big health picture. Nobody actually does that, um, which clearly we need. But the way science has developed, right, it, it, we, we were addressing the big questions. And then as we answered the big questions, we went to the smaller questions and we break up these problems into smaller and smaller pieces to understand them in more and more detail. And then you have an entire lab of, you know, 12 researchers focused on this one little protein. And they are only looking at what that one protein does. And so you need someone who can take a step back and go, well, that protein also interacts with this protein. And these two things do these different things. And therefore, you want both together or you want one the other. Like, you need to have that perspective to take a big step back, which means a very, very broad scientific background, a lot of time to spend in PubMed, and um, the ability to remove yourself and remove, you know, for me, it's challenging, right? Cause I have what's worked for me personally. And then there's like what I can rationalize with science. It happens to be most of it, but not necessarily all of it. And so removing myself from, okay, yep. I know that, you know, peas and green beans don't actually work for me personally. However, you know, when you look at what might be inflammatory in them, they are a legume. That's an exception right? They're a legume that really doesn't have anything. Once you cook them, there's nothing in there that's actually a problem. All the agglutinins are really easy de easily deactivated by heat. So forming that picture for people, right? It's, it's, it's tough. It's tough because it's a lot of information to distill. And then that's still a lot of information for people to take in. But that's what I really consider my voice in this community to be. The paleo mom, boys and girls. There she is. Sarah Ballantyne, thanks for coming on the show. Um, uh, the Paleo Approach is the book. You can get it on Amazon. Is it in stores? It's everywhere. It's even in Costco. Even in Costco. You heard even it. You go Costco. get your eight-gallon thing of mayonnaise with uh, pick up the Paleo Approach on the way. Mayonnaise would not be AIP. Just throwing it out there. Unacceptable. We'll get a box well, of the books. They probably sell them by the go. box. Yeah. Everything's bigger and better. All right, uh, Sarah Ballantyne, thanks for coming on the show. You have your own podcast, correct? I do, the Paleo View podcast with Stacey Toth of Paleo Parents. Okay. We are three years in, and we've never missed a week. So every week it comes out uh, Thursday afternoons for subscribers on iTunes. Is that 156 episodes about? About there, yeah, 155 I think we're at. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, yeah. there's a lot to go through. Don't listen to the early stuff. We were not good. We were not good at the beginning. Really? Yeah, I get, I get that too a little bit. You know, you, you want your latest work to always be improving. And so you're kind of almost embarrassed by the earlier stuff. Yeah. But, I uh, mean, if you want a good laugh, yeah. if you want a good laugh, what was, go... what was bad about it? Was it just like we were, finding we your footing? Really, we were just really green. And yeah. so, um, you know, and getting to know each other. So we're really good friends now. We can kind of have that like banter. But when we first started doing it, we, I mean, we hadn't met yet in person. Hmm. We had just sort of had a few phone conversations and decided this would be a good idea. Yeah. So we were getting to know each other, getting to know each other's opinions. Um, and for me, I was still at a point in my growth in the community where I was establishing my own voice and um, trying to figure out, you know, where I fit. So if you want a really, really good laugh, go listen to the first time we had Mark Sisson on the show because boy, was I nervous. And yeah. I was doing this like girl fan laugh, which... Most people who know me now can't even imagine me doing a girlfriend laugh, but I was totally doing that. Yeah. And it was super, super embarrassing. So if you want to start somewhere to see how terrible we were in the beginning, that's the episode. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, it, you you go from that, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm interviewing phase to the more professional, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> freak out, green. To, to, to the, like, you know, hey, this person's a colleague. And yeah, let's have a conversation. And, yeah, and it, you know, it took me really feeling like I was one of those leadership voices in this community to feel 
like I didn't have to grow fan over the other leaders in the community. Yeah, and you yeah. get you get better quality when when you don't go it from like the the fan boy fan girl approach. I had I had no control over it. This yeah. is the thing. That's just what was happening in my brain at the time. It was not a choice. I didn't even know it was going to happen until we were on air, and I found myself doing it. And so it's that's why it's just it's good for a laugh. Definitely, it's definitely good for a laugh. And then, other than that, don't bother listening to the old episode. Okay, okay. Well, good, good place to start. That's uh, the Paleo View podcast. And uh, Sarah, thanks for coming on the show. Good stuff. Good conversation. Fascinating uh, autoimmune diseases. They're uh, they're a tough one, but lots of different ways you can approach them. And so, glad to get your opinion. Thank you for having me. 